Sawabona, and thanks for listening. Welcome to the Wines of South Africa podcast. I'm U.S. Marketing Manager Jim Clark. In each episode, we explore some aspect of South African wine. We talk with winemakers, winery owners, and other members of South Africa's vibrant wine industry, and we also give a sommelier a chance to share their impression of the wines. To supplement this podcast, you'll find links to maps and other relevant information at our website, wosa.us. This episode will take a look not at a particular grape or region, but at grapevines, specifically old ones. Old vine wines have taken on a special significance in South Africa. As we'll hear, there's even a special program, the Old Vine Project, devoted to protecting and preserving these vineyards. Whether they put old vine on the label or not, South African winemakers appreciate the contribution these vines bring to their wines. It's, it's a bit like organic. Very few people know that Bukino, it's clear for 15 years now, it's been farmed and certified as organic vineyards. But we don't put it on any of our labels. It's not a marketing consideration. I think we really just want to leave our vineyards in a better condition than we found them. And it's a bit like the old vine thing. It's not a, a position we're taking. Uh, it's nice to celebrate them, but we want to talk about proprietary brands and, and the wines we make rather than organic or old or whatever the descriptor is. Hi, I'm Mark Kent. I'm Chief Winemaker or Technical Director and Managing Shareholder at Book and Notes Club in Franschhoek. Uh, it's historically an old property dating back to about 1776, purchased by our partnership in the mid-90s. Um, I joined as winemaker, farm manager, jack of all trades in 1st of December 1994. We made the first wines in 1996. We're now selling wine in 60 countries worldwide. I love to go and walk with interested people in these vineyards to just understand and respect and, again, to consider how old these vineyards are. I mean, the oldest people in the world are now, I think, 118 years, I think, is pretty close. Now you're seeing vineyards that are older than the oldest people, which is that's historic. It's like the, the last guys who fought in whatever wars or whatever. You know, the last guy who was part of this discovery. There's no people anymore who can remember these vineyards being planted. So that kind of puts it in another league. Probably most importantly is to work with the oldest Semyon in the Franschuk Valley. Franschuk is historically the home of Semyon in South Africa by virtue of these historical plantings. And since 1997, our first vintage of Semyon, I've been working with the 1902 block down on the alluvial sands on the historic Ekerhof property. So that's a bit before. And then latterly, we started working with a block from 1941 another one from 1936 and about four or five years ago I stumbled across a, a block of Muscat de Alessandri which we call at home Hanapurt and um, also dating back to 1902 which we're working with uh, and blending uh, in our semi-on yeah and then from 2002 with our first chocolate block we were working with what you know, there's much speculation but we understood to be the oldest Grenache block in the country in the Picaneers Kloof and with some really old bush finds since so in the Wellington district. And then in 2015, we made the big jump to move the chocolate block to one of origin Swatlak. So we sort of gave up those old Sinso blocks and now working with younger plantings. So it's been an important part of our makeup. We've never sort of traded on the old vine thing. It's just kind of what we do. We, we found it interesting and, and stimulating as winemakers to work with this historical fruit. It really, really is special. Some of the, my biggest moments in my 25-year journey in, in the wine business and longer than that is it's kind of a, a wine geek or wine waiter in a restaurant who was introduced to wine. Some of the most interesting things for me or stimulating moments have been 
tasting really old vines, like particularly old Madeira going back a hundred years and things. And what's next best is actually working with old fruit. And to think of a vineyard that was planted in 1902, you think of in the context of South African history, you think in global history, what was going on at the time, one can't help sort of moving in that direction. It's quite different to the thinking and, and the system that we were brought up in. And, and we've probably lost in the last 25 years a huge proportion of these vineyards for largely economic considerations which is sad. I think many of us, if we had the opportunity and the vision and the understanding, probably, we would have done more to secure and preserve these sites. This is Andre Morgenthal, and I manage the Old Vine Project in South Africa. And our endeavor is to firstly save our old vines, but ultimately create a sustainable business model for the project, but also for our growers to keep our farmers in business. The project started with Rosa Kruger, who's a prominent viticulturist in South Africa, along with Mr. Rupert. The two of them started talking. Rosa started looking after old vines when she happened into viticulture by accident. She moved down from Joburg, tired of being in the legal service. And she decided to come farming and was on a fruit farm as a farm manager, learned everything from grassroots up and then got involved in vineyards. And she pretty much realized that old vine wines are very special. She was working closely with Professor Eben Archer at University of Selenbosch at the time. He was her mentor, along with David Simon, a world-class geologist. She went overseas and started looking for these old vines, wines, and she realized that there's something special about it. And when she worked at Lomarin, Mr. Rupert had a similar passion for old vine wines, and he asked her to go and find these old vines. And that was basically, as we sit here now, a 20-year project where she had to physically call the farms after many years of negotiation with our industry organization called Service that looks after all, all our statistics. They gave her the records of the old vines and she located these blocks, neglected, forgotten, often harvested together with another block with no identity. And she carried on with that developing an old vine range for Antoni Rupert wines and when she found the old vineyards in Skurfberg, in the Citrusdale Mountains, I think that's where everything started. And she secured the grapes for the old vine range at Antun Rupert Wines. And uh, there were much more. And she started calling Eben Sadi and the Mullineus, later Chris Arlite. And uh, I think the old vine movement started there. And uh, by 2016, Mr. Rupert and Rusa had a discussion again about the future of this so-called Old Vine project. And he asked her, what's happening with this? Why is this not going forward? And then she said, well, I don't have funding to run this project. We need infrastructure. And he gave it some thought and he then gave seed funding. And that's where the Old Vine project started late in 2016. That's where I got involved. When Rosa started researching this, it was about the quality of the wine that comes from these old vines, the low-yielding 
Venetian and physiologically and viticulturally to understand why that is, that you have this very different wine. And I have to reiterate, as I always say when I talk about this, it's not about old vines make better wines. There's fantastic wines, world-class icon wines made from so-called young vines that's less than 35 years old. But there's an interesting quality in terms of what you get from old vines in the wine itself, the textural quality and the balance and the length. And I think that's what enticed Rosa. Recent research has confirmed what many growers and winemakers have long known, that old vines produce grapes that are demonstrably different in character than those of younger vines grown in the same conditions. We approach cellar practice a bit different, unlike most other cellars. We don't acidify any wine almost, so the analysis that come in are quite important to us. And what we do see with the older vineyards is certainly in the finished wine, generally higher pHs, a bit more concentration, a bit more extract. So with us, the correlation is not that direct, but sadly, we see pretty low acidities. And that's why we blend. In the old days, we used to use Sauvignon. Now we use Muscat because we found this really old Muscat block. And we, we bring it in nice and early because we don't want Muscat aromatics. And if the truth be told, it's only five or 600 liters that we actually um, ferment a whole bunch in amphora. And this then lifts the acidity to help the final blend of the other three semion vineyards. And we definitely see more concentration, higher pHs, which give nice textural qualities. Semion is a lot like reasoning. It really benefits from some aging. Currently, our most interesting semions are those of 2004-2005. Semion really is just a sommelier's dream, particularly the older ones. So if you ask me, it's about extract, about concentration. Generally, the fruit comes in relatively healthy. And these vines wouldn't have survived this long if they were prone to disease and pests and that. So it's been pretty cool. We've got very interesting research being done. The first project was launched by the Chenin Blanc Association. And I know that, that Ina from the Chenin Blanc Association linked up with the University of Sillebosch, and they did a project to evaluate the sensorial difference between young vine and old vine Chenin Blanc. And over a period of a few years, they've actually realized that the descriptors is different for old vine Chenin compared to young vine chinin. So there's scientific proof that there's actually a difference in the taste, to, to put it simply. And then another interesting project with Professor Berger from University of Stellenbosch as well, he took samplings from a, a block, which is an old block, Pinotage at Kanonkop, young vine interplanted Pinotage and the old vine Pinotage, and on the same day harvested both and did genetic sampling, and at the risk of trying to explain it, given that I studied philosophy and drama, it's better to read it up on our, on our website, but there's some proof that there is a difference genetically between young and old vine in the same block. Within South Africa, certain grape varieties tend to dominate the old vine discussion, largely owing to the planting trends of previous eras and the vagaries of market demand and vine health since then. More than half of our old vine plantings is in fact Chin Blanc. We've got about 48 varieties that's old vine on our books, but it's mostly white and a few reds. So let's say Chin Blanc, Palomino, Claret Blanche, Rosanne, Semio, of course, Semio Gris, 
in terms of white. And then in reds, we've got Senso, Grenache, that are more prevalent. Pinotage, a little bit of that. And then not so much Cabernet and Shiraz because they're quite prone to virus and they don't last that long. What happened to South Africa in terms of our planting ratio of white and red, by 94, when we were able to start exporting, we realized that there's a demand for red. Way north of 50%, almost 80% of our plantings were white. And that's not what the international market wanted. And we were a bit late on the market because of our trade restrictions and embargoes. So our ratio of planting changed in the mid-90s and the 10 years that followed. But funny enough, these old vine whites prevailed. As an example, 1968, the Shenan, the worst, that Shenan Blanc certified as Shenan. If you take, I think, the footpath as an example, and I think maybe Scarpion as well, I assume on Salvas it would be as a as multi-variety blend. So the 2 or 1% influence of other varieties, I think it would have been made out of a missile selection based on, let's say, a mother block somewhere in Stellenbosch. And depending on which part of the mother block in the 60s they took cuttings from, they got more or less of maybe some Palomino that was lying around or Crucian Blancs. Good afternoon. I'm David from David and Nadia. I grew up in this region called Swartland. It's north of Cape Town. It's a dry, big region historically known for wheat farmers. Studied at Stellenbosch University with my wife. She specialized in soil science and viticulture. I specialized in viticulture and wine. And then we've been traveling and working for other people for a couple of years. And in 2010, we started our very first vintage, actually at that stage without permission from my employee. But yet we started and in 2011, we were allowed to release that. And almost 10 years later, we've got a property that we lease in the Paderberg. Paderberg is the granitic mountain of the Swartland region. In the southeastern corner of the region, our neighbor is Ari Barnost, so we're in the Sieberitzkloof. And we lease the, the vineyards on the farm, and we would love to buy in the future. But for now, we lease long-term huge investments in terms of the seller and of the vineyards. And we also involved with about 10 other hectares in the Swartland, where we uh, involved with the farming uh, and also with the farmers that owns and farm them for us. So my involvement with the Farm project, is, I grew up in this region, and this region is obviously where Yevon Saudi and Saudi family vineyards are based. And knowing Rosa Career for a couple of years, actually back in the days when I was still employed by Sarensberg and then Lemberg in Tilbach, which is the neighboring region, as I was reaching out into the Swartland for vineyards, my pathways with obviously people like Christophe and Chevalry, with the Malinus, Bardnost, Saudi family, our roads crossed again and got to speak to Ressa and she's been keeping me in the loop from day one. So it's been a big honor. And then eventually 2013, we resigned, we packed up in Tilbach, we moved back to the Swartland now looking for more vineyards and want to grow our production. So it's coming from, let's say, a lot of work that's been done both by the Ruperts, Saudi family, Rissa, here on the ground, being not involved because I wasn't involved, but more just asking questions as to where we can find older vineyards, asking questions like 
of any old vine sensors or, or Grenache. And she's been inviting me to tastings, the launch of the old vine project on the Rupert's farm back in the days where they actually launched the Cape of Good Hope project. Hendrik Toma and I think Saudi, Evan Saudi and Ruesa and a few other were presenting the concept to an audience of two or three hundred people. And then also with all the decision makers back in the days, I mean, meeting at Rosa's house in Rebecca Steele with Chris Molyneux, with the founders, people just throwing ideas around, working with a couple of old vine Shinnans, old vine Karingans, and then obviously formally joining when I was able to do that, when the organization started. And obviously knowing Andre Morgenthal quite well for a couple of years, that's also contributed to let's say, my involvement and also enthusiasm around the project. We've got actually probably 10, 12, 15 single vignettes across our production. Initially, we thought that we might do Pinotage as single vignettes, and then the Grenache dream took over completely. We one of a few producers that really blends actually a lot of seven vignettes together and have one certified wine. We, if you look at the old wine project offerings, a lot of them are single vineyard sites. Our approach is that in terms of farming, we're looking at more biological farming. We're not biodynamic or organic yet. In the future, that's part of our research and so interest to look into those practices. We're part of the Swatland independent producers that believe in a more natural approach. I don't consider myself as a natural producer. For me, it's midway, slightly more conservative. I would like to sleep at night, and I think for me it's a good way of being as honest, as natural as possible, but adding a bit of sulfur and making sure it's crystal clear, be an unhealthy wines that I bottle. Not to say natural wines aren't, but for me that's the approach. Shinnam Long is the main focus on the white side, Grenache on the red side, and amazingly enough that we've got a plethora of old Shinnam Blanc vineyards we work with on the white side. On the red side, unfortunately, our country has gone through a phase where they basically ripped out a lot of the old vines, specifically Grenache. So we basically started from scratch, but it's also an amazing journey to be able to plan for the future. Initially, we said we're not going to do single vineyards, but I think it's also the maturity of our region, it's the evolution of our region in terms of the producer. If you think of Malinus that started with single terroir-driven wines, that's doing amazingly well. Bardnost is doing a lot of uh, different single vineyards off his farm of the same valley we based in. Yes, we all try to make great blends and also Shinnans and Grenache, but I think it's definitely an amazing opportunity and privilege for us to be able to do single site bottlings. I think the, the single vineyards we produce in terms of the Swartland, which is the one region we only focus on and we don't do multiple Appalachian wines, I think the qualities that we get from the different soils in one region is quite amazing. The main Shinnan we produce is a blend of seven different vineyards, all qualifying as part of the Old Fine project. And the idea is to create a picture of the Swartlands. So it's basically not about a single vineyard, it's about the region. So the main Shinnan is, is always granitic soils based. That gives us the backbone of the wine. And then we blend in shales, clays and irons. And then we bottle a few vineyards separately. So the one is called Wurstian, that's 1968 planted, west of Marmesbury, where we have a lot of red clay. So the red comes from iron towards Darling, towards the coast. We get a lot of almost magma-driven soils, which is like an Afrikaans we speak of coffee clip. 
iron oxidized soils and that iron element plays a big role into the clay because you get a few different types of clay but we typically get in the north northwestern part of the Swartland a lot of clay and if you have water in that region and that part of the Swartland you can fetch huge yields because the clays are very very fertile soils so typically what the worst thing we bring to the table it's the most powerful shillin we make it's more like almost a richness it's an interesting little massal selection vineyard historically that we assume was planted in maybe in 67 at least the rootstocks and then in 68 someone grafted what they assumed was only Chenin Blanc uh, over onto the rootstocks but a few palomino and a few vines also made its way into the planting but let's say that's less than two percent influence but that vineyard normally gives us a lot of power let's say structural textural shillin. The Scarlicop, which is uh, 1985 planted, so as of 2020, they'll be part of the Oldfine project. That's a shale lateral soil driven vineyard. Normally you get that in the Castilberg or Lamberg areas in our country, at least in the Swartland, which is slightly in the east towards Tilbach almost. And from that we get a lot of lateral tension from that scarly or schist or shale you know, in English. This vineyard is actually situated in the Paderberg, which makes it an anomaly in the Paderberg. And uh, Paderberg is actually known for granite. So we suspect this influence comes from the east, and it really pushed historically through the granite. And the reason for this is that the Plattbos, which is our third addition to our single vineyards, is planted next to Skalikop. So the one little tractor road that divides the two vineyards, both facing north, both very warm slopes. The one is shale lateral soil very shallow the other one is pure pure granite when i say pure granite if i taste that wine or when you make it the linearity the salinity the freshness the beautiful eye acid we get is what really stands out we try to bottle the pure pure schist or shale what in our circumstance uh, that separately and then the granite separately the fourth potential single vineyard is really a deep gravel and iron it's very deep soils. It's also quite, let's say, dry. It's between Malmesbury and Darling. And for, let's say, argument's sake, it's halfway from the Paderberg to the ocean. But still, it's almost the warmest part of the Swartland because there's no elevation. There's no altitude. It's basically just flat. And there's an amazing 1984 Schindler vineyard. And as a child, I used to go to that farm because my parents were good mates and good friends with the owners. Their son took over, I started making wine, and after these years, we started working with that vineyard three years ago. And it's got potential to be bottled as a fourth single vineyard. The reason why, it's got amazing, almost glycerol texture, weight in a wine. But call it more weight than glycerol, without being heavy. It's not fat and rich, because normally it goes hand in hand. Profitability is the big challenge now, and that was not part of... 20 years ago, after realizing the quality of the wines, trying to convince people to keep the old vines in the ground and then develop the profitable, sustainable model, which we are busy with now, convincing people to keep those blocks and convincing the brand owners to pay the owners of these blocks the sustainable amount of money to keep those vines in the ground and then create these beautiful wines. The vineyards were overlooked or neglected. 
because of its low yields. So I think they were underestimated, underrated. A farmer is a farmer. You have to make a hectare on your farm work for you financially because you've got to pay the bills and get the kids through school. If a block gets old, the yield drops, and you just don't care for it anymore if it's not financially viable. So I think that that was the problem. Even though it's delivering fantastic grapes, the bottom line is what pays for the coffee. If you get 2,000 rand a ton for grapes and your vineyard only yields one and a half or two tons a hectare, then you don't care much for that vineyard if you're in proper agricultural business. You are tempted to just grab up the vineyard and plant avos or citrus or butternuts or wheat or apples, whatever it is, that will give you a much better return. A lot of it was just really the sun. X tons per hectare, that's what we're going to get, and there we go. So today, obviously, we're going to add value. Most of those growers who buy that kind of matrix, they weren't adding value. We are able to add value, so I think that's where it was a big shift. If you consider 25 years ago when I started in this industry, our national planting was probably 120,000 hectares. Today, the planting is closer to 90 than 100,000 hectares. It tells you what's happened. So the, the victims of the acreage or hectares would have been these old vineyards. In Franchip, the value in, in real estate terms in, in the region is one of the highest and because of lifestyle farming and sadly development. So that on its own is a miracle that these mines have survived. But fortunately, all of these units are almost without exception in the hands of guardians or farmers that have owned these properties for generations. And they had the wisdom, for lack of a better word, just to, to retain some of these vineyards. So they had to, for economic reasons, pull up along the way. But fortunately, a lot of these vineyards have been preserved. The most recent, most exciting research for us is Jonathan Stain's research at UCT GSB at the business school, where they actually, through research, established that the consumer rates a wine that says old fine on the label more in terms of value, so they're willing to pay more. I think it's a bit of a myth that it's a guarantee of, of quality. There's a lot of other factors along the way, but certainly there is a level of intensity. And for us, it's a great departure point when you're working with really nice old group. By definition, the yields are going to be small. When we were at wine school, and I say we, even was sort of, the profits of the old wine movement in South Africa, even in our wing class together. And we were kind of taught that after 25 years, then it should be uprooted. Now, that's probably a function of the cooperative system where they were quite, it was about yields and tonnage and acidity and, and what was measured at the crusher. Today, that position's changed. And obviously, there's a direct correlation between age of wine and price. What the winemaker does after that is anybody's guess. So I think everybody will do their best to try and preserve them for as long as possible. I'd like to see the guy who dares grab up these 50-year-old vineyards now with all the attention and the work that's been done and the documentation. What is quite interesting in, in the South African landscape is that very few of the brand owners who are celebrating these old vineyards actually own the vineyards. So, so we've got great brands and the old vineyards, but 
in a lot of cases, these vineyards aren't owned by those landowners. And there's obviously a few exceptions. So the guys at Cops have they got really nice old vineyards and they're really great outfits and they've been doing it for a long time and they're really good people and, and they obviously do their best to preserve it. But what scares me a bit is all these guys falling around. I mean, the, the Le Colline site in, in Franchet, which we've been working with for some time, with those blocks going back to 42 or 36 or whatever it is. Every time I read a new review about a white blend and I say, Le Colline? What? <laughs> Somebody else? Is, there's another bandit in the vineyard? <laughs> uh, anyway, but, I mean, it's, it's kind of cool. I mean, one doesn't mind, but uh, I think as long as that goes on, uh, we certainly see uh, that putting pressure on prices. So what it, what it has done, which is really positive, is pushed up prices for the growers, which has justified keeping the vineyards in the ground. And that's really, I think, the key here. It's, it's about paying the guys more, which we, we know needed to happen anyway. There's been a big correction, but more so with the older vineyards than, than the, the younger stuff. Yeah, I think on the farmer side, to, I mean, the buy-ins of the project, the requirements for certification. So obviously, for the Wine and Spirit Board, Salvas being the information systems in our country, if you are a vineyard farmer and you want someone to buy your fruit, and that person that buys your fruit would like to make wine and he wants to claim certain things, then you as a farmer need to make sure that you've got a document and up-to-date information system available, which means that you have to have a planting date, size of your vineyard, and the cultivar and rootstock planting with a few other details. So that's the, the starting point. The farmer needs to adhere to those regulations if he wants to sell to someone that wants to certify and claim something and the claiming could be a vintage a variety an origin and a few things so that's the basis of it and then when it comes to old vine project you obviously need to make sure the vineyards you work with are certified as single vineyards it's not as easy as it sounds but i mean sometimes the paperwork is not the first priority on the farm so then you need to make sure that we've done it before and luckily we've got nadia that is really committed to handling those type of details to really go out to the farms to make sure that we do a mapping of the vineyards, we get the vineyard on board and the farmer on board, and we present this to the Wine Spirit Board to get the certification going. Obviously, we need to fulfill and we need to adhere to the requirements of it. I think the Old Vine Project does create a platform where we can look at an holistic approach to the farm and to the farming community, to poverty, to farm workers, to inequality. I think it's really got the potential to also adhere and, and let's say, address that. I mean, RUSA is a big advocate of that, where you need to think and discuss those things. It's not a prerequisite for the old time project to say that they want to see money in the right hands. It's a good guideline and it's obviously amongst us we all want to see this we want to pay better and we want to see the people are being looked after and it's an holistic approach it's not just about pure money into the bank of the farmer obviously he needs to survive he needs to cross-subsidize farming activities he needs to make business work he needs to make a margin he needs to grow he needs to make decisions in terms of replantings if something has been like maybe virus infected vineyards or wrong slopes or whatever but training, upliftment, an holistic approach is very important. We farm two of our single vineyards ourselves, the Scarlet Cop and Platpos, 
it's not a marketing exercise for me, so I don't really care to say this, but over there we can really testify to, to the strength and to the length we actually go to look at this whole thing as holistically. It's not just about saving money, because if you fetch $50 a bottle and more in the States for your wine, then you need to also look at the bottom end of it, and you need to look at everyone involved. As in other wine-producing countries, South Africa does not regulate the use of the words old vine on wine labels. However, the old vine project has introduced a seal designed to certify the truth of that statement. Certified Heritage Vineyard seal conveys a message to the consumer that is a confirmation that there's provenance, there's integrity, and there's traceability. The wine in the bottle comes from vineyards 35 years and older. It's uh, checked by an industry body called Savas here in South Africa, which looks after all our statistics. So we have records of planting dates back to 1900, which is pretty unique in the world. Unfortunately, we know that some of our oldest blocks are planted in the 1800s, but we don't have physical evidence of that. So the seal confirms that, as I said, integrity and quality, this aspirational value, the consumer is willing to pay more if they know that there's more to the wine than just a wine in the bottle. There's a story and something's going back to the community or the environment. And that's what the Old Vine Project is about. It's not only about quality wine. It's also that when you buy that wine, you are contributing to our viticultural heritage, you contributing to our environment and our people, the farmers and the workers that tend to these vineyards. Of course, at the core of certifying old vine vineyards is deciding at what age a vine actually becomes old. With Rusa's travels over the last 20 years, and with my discussions the last three years with my counterparts across the world where old vines reside, there seems to be an agreement that between 30 and 40 years, a vine comes into its own. It comes into balance. Rusa decided on 35 years, and, and I confirmed it talking to other people in the Barossa and California and Spain, Portugal, that 35 is a good age to pin it at old vine. And I haven't had any resistance from anybody except people in Barossa and, and chances saying, well, they'll prefer 60, but 35 is fine. You know, you've got to start somewhere. You've got to start saving the vineyards at some point. We, we can't wait until a vine is 60 years old. And especially in South Africa, we will lose them. What we see, and it's quite esoteric or philosophical, but we see that old vines actually, they read the vintage and they can see it coming. And that's why they are so resilient during drought periods. You can only put so much pressure on an old vine and then they won't make it. But in general, the old vines just tick on and tick over while the young vines suffer, let's say during a drought or during adverse conditions. You can also taste the difference. You can taste the difference in a wine from vineyards from that age. They're already 30 years and older is, is different. The seal is quite young. You can't expect that seal to work for you. But again, you need to really show that in each and every bottle or 
tasting that I do point that seal to the camera or to the audience or to the people in front of me if I am able to, to do that. So you have to really market that. There are certain guidelines that they expect of you in terms of an age of a vineyard, which is at least 35. The Alfheim project allows 15% of younger vineyards to be blended in, which I find very controversial. The idea behind it is that they also want to encourage people with, let's say, a 20 or 25 or going on to 30-year-old planting for someone to say that, include that in, in your wine so that the wine that will hopefully fetch a premium price is able to subsidize the farming activity so that that farmer, if it's not your own vineyard, doesn't lose hope at around 20 or 30 years in age in terms of the vineyard's lifespan. Because a lot of vineyards historically were farmed for mass production. Mass production means that somewhere around, I don't know, 15 or 30 years, depends on hygiene and how well or not you've neglected it. It's obviously yields are going down. So to get someone convinced, it's really money that needs to do the talking. So you need to cross-subsidize, and that's why they included 15% of younger plantings to allow for these vineyards to become 35 and eventually, let's say, saved, if I might call it that. I believe because we were working with a single vineyard concept, which is 100% in terms of certification, let's say, arrangement or rules, Whereas when we bottle any wine, you can have 85% for a vintage. You can have 85% for a variety. When it comes to demarcation of a single vineyard or origin, it's 100%. So that was my standing from day one. And therefore, I don't have any 15% younger vineyards blended in. I think it's a good thing, having said that. It's the same discussion that we've had, maybe to wander off the topic a little bit, if I may, the relevance of younger vineyards been interplanted into older vineyards we've got a big backlog of inefficient or vineyards not being farmed sustainable as an example worstian is two hectares in size normally we should have about at least six maybe six and a half thousand vines i think we have 2600 vines in two hectares so it's a lot of useless space being farmed but Again, you don't just farm per running meter like you would do when you use a tractor because you spray for every meter, you plant your cover crop for every meter. So I would like to say that the good in that situation is that you at least prepare the whole area soil-wise quite well. You do a lot of compost, proper mulching, proper cover crops. And holistically, that vineyard, even if it's just two and a half thousand vines, will be better off for that. You're not just farming per vine. We will interplanting in the future because some way we also need to get up to scratch we need the opportunity to get to 100 percent and then to maintain 100 percent because not each and every vineyard in terms of the old vine project goes into three four five six hundred grand bottles of wine some of them are marginal price point wines but at least they're bottled which i think is very positive so to have sustainability in farming practices, which means a proper, well-planted and kept up vineyard that makes your farming expenses, your overheads lower, that makes your ton of grapes that you get from it much more efficient, especially if it's more marginal price point bottles, then that's very important. That might be the difference between taking out that vineyard and not. So if we're allowed to get our vineyards up to 100%, let's say status in terms of living vines in a vineyard, then it's our responsibility to upkeep it and to make sure that every year we plant, we interplant if there's a dead vine 
for the first couple of years, needless to say, we would have a difference in terms of wine, different maturity level. And I believe it's in each and every producer's integrity to blend or not to blend. So getting back to the old vine project, the seal is as good as the honesty and the integrity of the farmer and of the maker. That's very important. But there's definitely a cultural shift on big scale. I mean, if you think of Uniwines, one of the brands being Dash Bosch, they bought into this project and they've got huge, huge areas of vineyards to look after. And they've got a model for producers and farmers to look after. And just having one or two or three wines that's part of the old vine project has led to people farming differently, regardless of scale or size or whether it's bulk or bottled. I think hygiene in vineyards, quality that you can achieve just by having a bit of a platform where you can actually sell it. So there's been a cultural shift. It was like a revolution. It's still happening. And I think it's quite early days to see each and every farmer that's involved with this, whether it's through the seller or making wine itself. There's been a shift towards quality farming for vineyards that needs to become old and older than before. We can't every year or every 20 years rip out and start from scratch and expect that to change South Africa as a brand in the world. Obviously, at certain price points, it's all about quality and quantity and other price points. But there's definitely been a good cultural awakening. I think that's the bottom line. I think we need people to embrace what Andre and Russ and the team are doing. It's not easy. There's limited resources. Uh, and it's a great initiative. For me, that's the most important thing about the old vineyards and currently is that it's being nicely documented. There's a great database and people are doing it for the right reasons. It's that the legacy that we want to leave behind. We did something. These guys put up their hands and said, okay, we're going to preserve this national treasure. And my generation, even with Chris Williams, a few guys in class, we were lucky. You know, it kind of opened up for us post-94. The industry has been good for us in 25 years. But it's now time for the young guys. And vineyards that we planted, the, the fruit that I planted at Book and Notes Club in 1994, those are getting close to becoming old vineyards themselves. You know? Well, we've been investigating and researching the old vines, and we, we're trying to understand why did they survive all those decades? You know, Professor Deloire, that was at University of Stellenbosch for a while, is back in France now. He put it beautifully when the old vine range at Antonio Rupert Wines were launched. He said, a vine is planted in one place. It's not like a human being where we can turn on the air conditioning or open an umbrella or run away and relocate and take your passport and go live somewhere else. That vine sits there. And if that vine can actually survive there for at least three decades, never mind four, six or eight, there must be a reason for that. And we're trying to learn from the old vines and that informs us for future plantings. And that's why we came up with this term, plant to grow old. It's not only about the old vines. That was the mandate three years ago, but what we actually want to do is preserve our viticultural heritage, but also going forward to secure our vineyards for the future and to make wine going forward. You don't want to lose vineyards along the way due to virus or whatever else. So we want to learn from the old vines why they actually survived. And we promote the fact that you must plant to grow old with certified virus-free material. 
we work closely with Vititech, which is a subsidiary of Vinpro, and we propagate vineyard material there, vine cuttings. And to add on to that, last year we had Interloire and Antave, which is a viticultural nursery out of France, visiting, and they took DNA material from the 10 oldest Chenin Blanc blocks in South Africa, took it back to France, it was cleaned up, and that material is coming back to South Africa and being made available to our members to plant to grow old. I think the future of the Old Van project hinges on economic viability, not only for the members and the primary producers, the grape growers, but also for the project itself, sort of getting a raison d'etre for the project. And I would like to see an international old vine allegiance, which I've been working on. I think for the future of the old vine project, the certified heritage vineyard seal is the most important element going forward because it resembles the provenance and the integrity and the traceability of that wine. And as I said earlier, it's not only about the wine. It's about what the wine stands for and what you are actually buying. We are creating a community, a tribe of people understanding the value of what you're actually buying. You are protecting heritage in terms of viticulture. You are investing in people, keeping farmers alive and investing in farm workers. You're not just buying a bottle of wine. You're buying much more than that. You're buying into not only a culture, but you're buying into heritage and, and people and a cause. I see it when I talk to people and I tell these stories about how we, we're saving vineyards and saving people. To get a U.S. perspective on these wines, I turned to Eric Sagelbaum. Eric is the founder and chief innovation officer of his company Sommelier, that's spelled with a Y-A-Y at the end, to note his enthusiasm for wine. It's a full-service hospitality consulting company. He's also last year's Food and Wine Sommelier of the Year, and he's been to South Africa and had a chance to explore these wines a bit with me, so I thought he'd be a great person to get a perspective from. Eric, how are you? I am great. Thank you. Wow. That's uh, such an amazing introduction. You should do my PR. Now, Old Vines is not a uniquely South African proposition. What was your impression of Old Vines worldwide as to what they meant to wine quality? Well, I think it's worth thinking about what Old Vines really means and recognizing the fact that almost nowhere on the planet is there any kind of legal definition to what qualifies as Old Vines. So if you're in France and you want to say VAV, and depending on the appellation, you may or may not be able to put that on young vines. Certainly in the United States, I remember once I was talking to a winemaker about their old vines cab, and I'm like, how old are the vines? And he said, 12 years. I'm like, you call that old vines? He's like, well, they're the oldest vines that we have. So one of the things that struck me about South Africa was that when they say old vines, they mean old vines. These are vines that have witnessed a complete change in political climate, not just locally, but internationally. And I think true old vines really does change the character that can be delivered 
not to sound trite, but I like the idea that there's wisdom with age. And I think with vines, it's the same thing, only it's not knowledge wisdom that's imparted to the grapes. It's wisdom about how to achieve phenolic ripeness and how to get the right sugar concentration and anthocyanin density and all that stuff. So from just a physiochemical standpoint, I think old vines really do contribute something different to the finished quality of a wine. And I think more than anywhere in the world, South Africa really gets it right that when people say old vines, they mean these vines have seen some age, not just a marketing term. I'm also a particular lover of Shannon, and Shannon, I think, is a varietal more so than just about any other that the vine age really, really changes things pretty dramatically. I think Ken Forrester is a perfect example of that. If you look at his old vine from the FMC versus some of the younger plots, there really is an impression from those aged vines into the finished wine. How much do you consider that to be a difference in character and style, and how much a difference in actual just straight-out quality? I think the two are related, but they're not mutually exclusive. I don't think that old vine necessarily means better quality, but I'm somewhat abstract, and I like analogies. So I think of flavor like spheres, and I find that with old vines, the sphere is more beach ball-sized, And with younger vines, the sphere is more basketball size. Now, the pattern can be the same. Whatever the coloring of that sphere is, that can be the same. But just imagine a basketball with a pattern on it and that exact same pattern on something a beach ball size, right? Even though the pattern is the same and the colors are the same, it's a different experience, a different interaction, a different impression with the larger versus the smaller. So to me, old vines, it's just like a larger, more saturated, more clear more dimensional picture of the flavor and if you just think about like well i take this analogy to extreme limited you can sort of hold a larger sphere of flavor when holding a larger sphere of color and again i think i just push that analogy beyond its limits but for me with old vines it really is it's like the same pattern on a much larger object interesting so what would that mean then to someone who goes into a restaurant and sees the south africa section and sees that there's a, a handful of old vine wines on there For people who drink wine for the love of wine, for the flavor, for the experience, then yeah, the old wine category for South Africa provides a number of things. Firstly, generally speaking, great quality outside of price. Now when we take price in, or if you want to talk about value, it's pretty hard to compete with the quality and price point of South African old wine wine from everywhere else in the world. So Mm -hmm. I would suggest to anyone that really likes wine for the sake of flavor that South African old vine wines are, is a really great place to focus your attention. We sent you a few wines, and one of them I think is a great example of this, especially if you want to dip a toe in the category and try out old vine South African Chenin Blanc. And that's the Jostenberg de Octoros Chenin Blanc, which I think you have right there with you. Mm-hmm. I sure do. I think I said this before. Chenin Blanc is a particular favorite of mine. I'm just absolutely in love with the varietal. I think... Chenin Blanc is one of those hidden gems for real wine lovers. People who are next level into wine tend to gravitate first and foremost to Riesling and Chenin Blanc. What I particularly love about this Chenin is that it is so textbook varietal. Now, I don't know if I would blind taste and be like, oh, this is clearly South African old vine Chenin Blanc. I don't know if I'm that good. But to have this like red apple skin note to it and then this just Mm. electric vivacious acidity those are two things that will always, 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 always take me to Chenin Blanc. And it's just got this beautiful dried or crushed river rock stone notes. This is everything I want in a Chenin Blanc. And also it has texture, too. I mean, I don't think this sees any oak. I certainly don't taste any. 
And it's not mm. wheezy, but it just feels more in my mouth. So this is the first time I've ever tried this, and it's pretty awesome. Yeah, so this is organically grown, and it's from Parle. The texture with old vines, I, I suspect that oftentimes it's just, just a concentration of the dry extract that's creating the texture and glycerol rather than oak or leaves or things like that. But I think texture is one of the things that in old vine Shannon's, but South African white wines in general is something they do very well. I agree wholeheartedly. And this is a pretty good example of that. Mm -hmm. So I think we have another Shannon. And in this case, we're moving even further north into an even warmer area, the Swartland. And that's the David and Nadia Hoestein. And these vines were planted in 1968. There's so much happening here. The red apple skin is there. The acid is there. It, it feels like this maybe spent a little time in oak and had some mallow, but that's punctuation. It's a punctuation to the old vine wine character. It's by no means the main note of the conversation. It's a really cool expression, a different expression, certainly. But again, we see texture, and I have to believe that part of that is winemaking, and part of that is just what 50-year-old vines have learned to do, just in terms of phenolic ripeness and all that other stuff. And differently with this one than the first wine, there's the mineral note. It's a lot more like iron pan. There's a ferrous quality to it. Uh, I would say it's irony, but <laughs> that word means something different. I should probably do a deep dive into the soils here. Well, scientists can be really skeptical about whether you're actually pulling bits of the particular minerals that you taste from the soils. But th these vines are indeed on a rather deep clay soils, very iron rich. It's funny, I, you mentioned the, the mallow character, and this is actually something very unique um, and interesting about the Swartland is because it's quite warm up there, they tend to get very low amounts of malic acid in the Chenin Blancs. And so despite the fact that it's warm and oftentimes the acidity might, in theory, be lower overall than you might want, most producers there will put the wine through mallow. It doesn't really make a difference to the overall acidity, but it adds this great textural element to the wine. In terms of wood use for this wine, by the way, it goes basically from the vintage to the following vintage. So it's called 11 months in older 300 liter barrels and French oak, obviously. So, you know, multi-use barrels that are giving some textural and some oxidative impressions, but not any like strong wood flavor. You know, I think they did a really good job of balancing that. Mm -hmm. Now, for our final wine, we've got a red and I'm kind of cheating the, the old vine system here a little bit because this is a blend. It's a blend of Cinso, Cabernet Sauvignon, and Cabernet Franc. So an unconventional blend, but there's a good story behind that. And the Cinso in particular comes from the two oldest Cinso vineyards in South Africa. A 115-year-old dry-farmed bushvine Cinso vineyard in Wellington, um, and then a 93-year-old dry-farmed bushvine Cinso from Franchuk. And I should say, not just the two oldest Cinso vineyards, but the two oldest red grape vineyards in South Africa. And then the Cabernet is 36 years old, and the Cabernet Franc is younger vines, and that comes from the Helderberg and Stellenbosch. This is from the Molnus, but it's their new project of the wineries in Franschhoek, and it's called Le Passant. So this is not a classic combination, but how did this come across to you? Well, I love the Cinso component. I I'm okay playing the law of averages when it comes to the age on this. It still comes out well. When I first tasted it, I definitely felt this in so. It's a grape that I love. It's a grape that I love to drink chilled, by the way. Mm. And I think there's definitely small vine character. There's also a delicate stemminess to this. 
Mm-hmm. It, it, I should look up the, the text sheet, but like it doesn't feel whole cluster, but there's just this really beautiful background sort of greenness to this that I wonder if that's a combination of Vine Age and Cab Franc separately, the Vine Age on the Cinso, and then yeah, I know it's Young Vines, but the Cab Franc. Mm-hmm. But I think it, it just is a beautiful harmony to this wine, especially in the Cinso. And, and when I talk about the Cinso, and I'm trying to separate it, knowing what the blend is, I'm really trying to pull it out. And I think it's a sort of like high toned red register. Yeah. It's, it's like pomegranate seed and a fresh cranberry and red currant. That's just like pulling beautifully with a pretty good stony minerality. I feel like that's gotta be the combination of the two old vineyards of Cinso. And then there's that sort of green note coming through and the more like traditional sort of berry tobacco notes coming out of the Cab Sauv and the Cab Franc. Mm-hmm. It's a cool idea. I think, you know, it's like past, present, and future of South Africa all in one bottle. Actually, that's how um, Andre Mono kind of conceptualizes the wine because Cinso Cabernet blends were actually quite common in the second half of the 20th century in South Africa for a variety of reasons. But a lot of people not just going back to old vines, but going back to some of the older practices. We taste these old wines now, and they actually show quite well. So why did they work, and can we recreate that? And so the Cinso Cabernet Sauvignon combination is exactly that. But Cabernet Franc is definitely a grape that a lot of young winemakers are excited about in South Africa, so that's the future component added to that. I've definitely seen some really exciting Cabernet Franc expressions. Uh, David Finlayson does one, for instance, mm. I think that everything I've seen Cab Franc-wise from South Africa of late, whether it's a solo varietal or a component of a blend, has been pretty exceptional. And I'm looking forward to us having this conversation in 40 years from now when we can talk about Old Vine Cab Franc. Yeah, great. So I think that while that covers all our wines, is there anything else about South African Old Vine wines that we didn't really get the chance to touch on that you think is worth knowing about? I think it's worth noting that Again, we talked about the fact that, that old vines is a, a relatively lackadaisical term, depending on where you are in the world. I think that there's a clear culture of respect in South Africa for vines and, and wines. So it makes sense then that old vines truly are old vines. Nobody's got a 20-year-old expression that they're calling old vines. And I think that more and more South African winemakers are, are recognizing that these deserve to be soloists rather than components of younger vineyard plots so mm-hmm. i love the idea that the project exists and i think we're going to see more and more really purposeful expressions of what vine age means coming out of the various regions and wards and districts of south africa in the coming years Hope you enjoyed this look at South Africa's Old Vine Vineyards. You can find more resources and relevant links at our website, wosa.us. Also on the website, check out the Wines of South Africa Psalm Session. If you want to learn more about South African wine, here's your chance. Get together a group of friends on Zoom or whatever video conference platform you prefer, have each one pick up a bottle of South African wine, and we'll arrange for a sommelier to kick off your online party with an hour-long rundown of the wines. You'll find more details on our website. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends, or better yet, go to the platform where you found it and leave a review. That will help more people discover it and discover South African wines. Right now, the South African wine industry is struggling with a ban on the sales of alcohol within the country, part of the South African government's efforts to stem the spread of the coronavirus. If you're outside of South Africa, 
please pick up a bottle of South African wine when you have the chance. The whole industry will appreciate your support. Next episode, we'll stay on the old theme, but in a different way. We'll look at a region whose wines were so successful back in the 1700s that when the French king Louis XVI was marched off to the guillotine, he actually had more of these South African wines in the cellar at Versailles than he did Bordeaux or Burgundy. It's time to head out into the suburbs of Cape Town to visit Constantia. 